This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.33, No Family, No Homeland, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm here to bully Shar. And I'm Nina, on tenderhooks wondering how this will end. <laughs> When we finished recording for this episode of the podcast, we realized that it was going to be double the usual length for an episode, and too big for our podcast host. There was no easy way to cut it down, and we do feel strongly that these two episodes of the show need to be analyzed together. So we made one huge episode, and then we chopped it into two halves. You are currently listening to the first half. The second half will pick up right where this one leaves off. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 75 patrons. A big thank you to you all, including our newest patrons, Daniel, Gaijin Shar, and David C. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our bonus content, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. Special thanks to Chari, Charlie, <laughs> Lucas L., Trafalgar Kushranada, and Ron S., a.k.a. Goofy Shumi, for buying us <laughs> some much-needed supplies from our wish list. You, too, can support the podcast by buying us research materials <laughs> and copious amounts of tea. <laughs> we are drinking some of that tea right now. Thank you. The link to the wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. <laughs> We also have a lot of thanks to extend to fans who have been supporting us, too many to include in one episode, so this week we are going to focus exclusively on people who have reviewed us recently. Thank yous go out this week to, on iTunes, MusaADM416, Fruitso, bleh, Blood 98 Breakin' Bones at Fizzcrank, and Matera, and on Facebook to Cody F, Luigi C, and Andy T. Thank you all for your reviews, they really do help the podcast grow. And now let's talk about some Gundam. Last week, the White Base returned to Solomon, physically and emotionally exhausted after their ordeals at the Texas colony. But their rest was interrupted, first by a terrifying stealth attack by Lala and the Elmeth, and then by the return of the Brabro and the arrival of a new Xeon new type, Lieutenant Shalia Bull. Despite Shalia's powers and the Brabro's startling use of wire-guided drones to attack from multiple directions at once, Amuro was able to use his own powers to locate and destroy the Brabro. Victory comes with a price. Amuro has pushed the Gundam past its limits, and finally it breaks down, leaving them all defenseless against another new type attack. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam episodes 40 and 41, Lala's Dilemma and A Cosmic Glow. And now, the recap.
the White Base crew have returned to Solomon, where they think they have a solution for the Gundam's inability to keep up with Amuro. Dr. Mos Khan leads a group of technicians in modifying the Gundam with a magnetic coating, but there are no guarantees and they haven't had time to test anything. Granada and Abawaku form two ends of the last line of defense for the Xeon homeland. Behind this line, Girin has ordered the evacuation of Mahal, one of Xeon's colony cylinders. Families are separated, forced to leave everything behind, and stragglers are beaten by soldiers. In the capital, Girin discusses his plans with Degwin. The evacuated colony will become a solar ray weapon and defend the rest of Xeon. As he listens to Girin's plans for population control, the promotion of so-called superior races, and total dictatorship, Degwin asks if Girin has ever heard of Adolf Hitler. Girin remembers him only vaguely, as a historical figure, but does not hesitate to call himself a follower of Hitler. He leaves the capital to take command of the forces at Abawaku. Lala has her first sortie against a small Federation force. Two Rickdoms are meant to provide her cover fire, while she attacks from behind them with the Elmeth's bits. But when they see Lala's abilities, the Rickdom pilots retreat, leaving Lala to face the ships alone. Under a barrage of constant fire, Lala is unable to control the bits effectively. It is not until Shar joins her in his Gelgub that she is able to concentrate again, destroying the last ship of the group. Federation forces are departing Solomon in three groups, all headed for the Xeon homeland. With the Gundam modifications finally complete, the White Base joins the rest of the fleet. As they approach the rendezvous point, they see that battle has already begun and quickly sortie their own forces. Almost immediately, Amuro can hear something calling to him and can sense Lala and Shar nearby. He soon finds himself face to face with both, fighting off nameless Rickdoms while he duels Shar. Lala's focus is on defending Shar, and she even warns him away from the noticeably stronger Gundam. Amuro manages to shoot off one of the Gelgoog's arms, and even uses his new type abilities to mentally attack Lala when she tries to intervene. While Amuro is destroying the Elmeth's bits, he suddenly hears Lala's voice in his head. You're a bad person, bullying Shar like this! Incredulous, he asks her, who are you calling bad? Lala and Shar retreat, and the White Base joins the rest of the fleet. In the next episode, Girin tells Degwin that the Federation is too weakened by the war to attack the Moon or Abawaku. He believes they will attack the Xeon homeland directly. Degwin argues that this is all the more reason to seek peace, and when Girin refuses, he goes behind Girin's back, attempting to meet with Federation command and negotiate a peaceful end to the war. But the Solar Ray is ready, and Girin believes it will turn the tide in Xeon's favor. On her flagship, Kaecilia discusses the plan for the upcoming battles with Shar. Before suddenly confronting him, she knows he is Kasval, and that until recently he planned to overthrow the Zabi family. Although she asks what made him abandon the plan, she does not demand an answer, instead telling him that such questions must wait until after the Federation is defeated. Shar and Lala prepare to sortie, and Shar tells Lala that while he is on the battlefield with her, he will follow her orders. She has surpassed him, as he always said she would. With a hand on her cheek, he kisses her. As he leaves, Lala gives her first order. He must wear a normal suit in battle from now on. The battle is chaotic, with dozens of ships and mobile suits on both sides. Amuro struggles to hit the bits, until he focuses and brings his new type abilities to bear. Suddenly, he can sense where the bits will be, and hits them every time. Forced to fight at shorter range, Lala fires the Elmuth's guns at Amuro. In the heat of battle, the two seem to see and hear each other in short bursts. Amuro asks Lala why she fights, and she tells him it is to defend Shar. She asks how he can fight like this, when he has no family or homeland to defend or protect. It's unnatural. 
Around them, the fighting continues. In a moment of particular connection, the two see each other as if they were floating in space, without mobile suit or mobile armor. Amuro asks Lala again, is there no other reason she fights? Is it only for Char? Does it mean nothing that the two of them met? Lala wonders if this is destiny, but if it is, then life is too cruel. The connection between Amuro and Lala causes a reaction, a small spark of mental energy in nearby new types. Sela, Mirai, and for the first time, Char. Amuro insists that they are all burdened by their own fate and have to accept it. An image of waves slowly rises from the bottom of the screen, crashing back and forth and filling our vision. Lights flash and converge, and Lala and Amuro appear superimposed over each other. Shar and his Galgoog rush in, breaking the connection between the two. As the Gundam fights him off, Shar asks a pensive, distracted Lala for guidance. They continue to fight, each pushing the limits of their abilities and their mobile suits, until finally Amuro gets the upper hand. With a clear line to a killing blow, he drives forward with his beam saber, but at the last moment Lala pilots the Elmeth into his path. She gives her life to save Shar. Amuro cries out, and the crushing, suffocating waves of fate begin to cover him. In the moments before she dies, Lala speaks to Amuro in their minds. As he weeps, they talk about the future of humanity, and how there is hope because they were able to understand each other. Still Amuro cries. He has done something he can never take back. The Federation has won this battle. Only Kaecilia's Guazin remains on the Xeon side. They receive orders from Abawaku that the Solar Ray will fire soon, targeting one of the three Federation fleets, and they must move out of its path. The White Base has fallen behind, but as they rush to catch up with the rest of the fleet, Amuro runs onto the bridge yelling that they have to stop, have to go back, that ahead, people are melting in a whirlpool of light. So we just finished watching Lala's Dilemma and A Cosmic Glow, episodes 40 and 41 in the Japanese version, or 39, 39 and 40, 40. <laughs> in the American version. The Japanese titles for these episodes are Hermesu no Rara and Hikaru Uchu. Uh, so Cosmic Glow to Hikaru Uchu is pretty good. Hikaru is light or bright. Uchu is space. <laughs> <laughs> But Lala's Dilemma is kind of an interesting one because, uh, for one thing, she doesn't seem to face any dilemmas in yeah. the episode. I wonder if they just had trouble translating Hermes Norada. Because it, I suppose if I had to translate it, I would probably say something like Lala of the Elmeth, which admittedly is kind of odd sounding in English. Can you quickly explain how possessives work in Japanese? Lordy, okay. <laughs> Japanese uses possessives more than English does. For instance, when we talk about a city in a state, we might say New York, New York, Anchorage, Alaska. In Japanese, that order would switch. You go from the conceptually like biggest thing <laughs> to the smallest. So you would say Alaska no Anchorage, New York no New York. Uh, from broad category to narrower category. That's why Japanese names work the way they do, with the family name first and then the personal name second. Right, because the family is the, the bigger category to which this one individual belongs. And if you look at historical names from way back in Japanese history, they use the possessive signifier, the word no, 
in between the clan name and the personal name. Minamoto no Yoritomo. Yes, correct. So there's some interesting implications if you say Ermezu no Rara. Because it's not Lala's Elmeth. Right. It's not that it belongs to her. It's sort of that she belongs to it. Yeah, I think Lala of the Elmeth is a pretty good translation there. I like it conceptually and sort of aesthetically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the idea. I wouldn't say Elmeth's Lala. Like, that just doesn't yeah. work in English. Yeah. But you could, in English, say so-and-so of the... And then name a ship, for instance. Picard like, of the Enterprise. Exactly. That is probably the best way of conceptualizing that statement. But again, nothing to do with <laughs> with any kind of dilemma. Yeah, we're going to come back to Lala later. So I don't want to get into this too much right now. But I will say, I think in the institutional memory of this episode, in the way that it is remembered by the fandom and the way it's treated in the Gundam canon later on, Lala is definitely treated as being more conflicted, more innocent than she is actually portrayed as being in this episode. Lala has got no compunctions about what she is doing here. Lala has exactly one thing she is trying to accomplish, and that is to protect Char and do whatever Char wants her to do. I think there are some complicating factors, but like you said, we'll come back to it. As kind of an overarching note, and I felt this in the past episode or two as well, and very strongly in these two episodes, it feels as if they are being much more experimental with the animation here. Mm -hmm. They're playing with the visuals a lot more. Obviously, they're crunched for time, and they've already been canceled, right? So nobody <laughs> they're not going to be more canceled than they already are. I wonder if that gave them a certain amount of license to cut loose. There seem to be a lot more emphasis and interest in drawing attention to the low and no gravity aspects mm -hmm. of the world. <laughs> Lots on, of scenes where somebody is just floating. Including on the bridge, which we haven't seen much of before. We've seen a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. One scene where a Federation ship has Jim's standing on top of it, but then also on the underside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because of course. presumably it's magnets or whatever. They can just like stick to whatever <laughs> surface. Um before battle, everybody's like having a snack and some of them are standing on what to the audience looks like the ceiling. Mm -hmm. I could sort of imagine somebody working on storyboards and being like, oh, right, our perception of gravity is irrelevant. <laughs> Let's play with that. It's also easier. You don't have to draw somebody walking. You can just draw them drifting. Yeah. We get a lot more of the very abstract visuals the floating lights the flashes we get a whole extended visual metaphor of the ocean mm -hmm. which we'll talk about when we get to the scene where that happens it's hugely significant but obviously they are in space there is no ocean here there is no water it's entirely metaphorical after the ocean scene we get one of like just a splash of land like a little island in the middle of space. Not even an island because the edges are all indistinct. It just blends into the cosmos. Yeah, some mountains and a field and some children running <laughs> through a field. Oh, you thought those were children? I thought those were children. Oh, we're going to have to talk about that. Those are the most obvious visual metaphors in that they are depicting actual things mm -hmm. as opposed to a person melting or flashing lights or superimposing one person's face over another. Or for some reason, sperm inseminating an egg. Which then turns into a sun or a star? Very unclear. Yeah. Did you notice 
there are moments, especially during the ocean scenes, where the like new type flash that people are getting starts to look not like a spark, but like a lightning. In that scene, Lala's faceplate on her helmet cracks. It shatters. But, but this before it breaks apart, those cracks that shatter looks like that new type flash. Oh. It looks like a new type flash mm-hmm. across her face before you realize, oh no, wait, it's the faceplate. Mm-hmm. It seems like it, it's actually the psychic power that's breaking the faceplate. It's not anything physical. Because we've had this back and forth, what was just flashes turning into like bolts of psychic power going back and forth or between lines. Lala and Amaro. Yeah. And there's one scene where we see like bolts striking her face mm-hmm. and she recoils from them physically. Aside from those visual points... I do think we get a lot more sort of expository conversations between people. I think the show has resisted doing that. I think we have been getting more and more of it as they've been crunched for time. Mm -hmm. And it's not a ton. It didn't feel excessive, but it did feel markedly different from previous episodes. I don't want to pick on these last episodes of Gundam and the animation quality thereof, because it is really good for the most part. I do want to point to a couple of funny things that we noticed first. Oh, reused stuff? There's one scene of Sela destroying a dom where she dodges a rocket blast and then she fires back with both cannons and she hits it in the head and chest and destroys a dom. So that gets used constantly and it shows up again here. There's the classic Hayato missing scene. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to point out was that when Mirai first appears in the first of these two episodes, she is badly off model. So much so that it looks like they used somebody else's body and drew Mirai's head on it. Well, they also draw her in like absolute profile, which is hard to make look good in any case. And she just looks so strange. Her face looks wrong. Her body shape doesn't even look like a human. (laughs) 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 Yeah, certainly doesn't look like Mirai. And the other thing I was going to note is throughout the whole course of Gundam, and even in these episodes, like every background character has a very distinct look, a unique face, like a very unique character design for even the most inconsequential background characters. Except that when Moss Khan shows up with like 12 Federation engineers, they are all dressed identically. They all have basically the same hair and basically the same face. (laughs) So unless Moss Khan employs a set of clones, which he might. He is a top electrical engineer. They can do cloning, right? I don't know. Magnets somehow. Magnets are involved. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) they're only on screen for for a brief moment, but their similarity was striking. Also... Charles Gelgug has gotten an upgrade. He's now using a beam Naginata. As opposed to the purely physical one. And this one has blades at both ends, (gasps) which is very, very fake. That's not a real thing. Those don't work. Finally, we get a new song, this very jazzy tune. (laughs) About Char. It's called Here Comes Char, Yeah, Char Gakuru. すべてを忘れて一人残った傷ついた俺がこの戦場で後に戻れば地獄に落ちるビーム輝くフラッシュバックに 
ツの影シャーシャーシャー Which mostly felt odd to me because it's a very, I think, peppy, jazzy, fun song、mm-hmm. in a really serious fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> And a fight scene where Shar is of tertiary importance.、Mm-hmm. Like the most important people in that scene are Amuro and Lala. And then you have this song about Sha, Sha, Sha. And contrast that, because that's in the first episode. That's when Amuro directly fights with the Elmeth for the first time. Uh, and the Gelgoog is there too. <laughs> <laughs> the Gelgoog can come too. <laughs> and then compare that to the fight in the second episode. Also, between Amro and the Elmeth, and the Gelgoog is also there too. And in that fight, there's no music at all.、Mm. There's music before, but when they get into the, the final stage of that fight, the one that ultimately results in Lala's death, no music, just sound effects. It's striking. The music doesn't start up again until Lala is dead. Bum, bum, bum. It's right at that moment that we go into the, the, the Yume, sad, the sad song that、ballad. was played when Slager died back in the Solomon arc. In both situations, we get musical choices that are wrong and uncomfortable. <laughs> They don't match what we would expect from music for that scene. Yeah, I think that's true. Although the silence was not as jarring to me, I think because I'm, I've gotten used to the show playing with the lack of music.、Mm-hmm. The very jazzy, sort of upbeat Here Comes Char, which I was telling Tom to me sounds like the theme song for a 60s or 70s spy movie. Absolutely, it does. It's the vibe、yeah. <laughs> that I'm getting there. <laughs> When we first started talking about how to talk about this episode, we had a whole long list of categories. And then we started condensing them and condensing them and condensing them. And eventually we decided there are really two storylines running through these two episodes. One of them is Amuro and Lala, and Shark can come too, which we'll talk about later. The other one is a story about the Zabi clan and the Xeon homeland. Because something very interesting is happening there. When I mentioned exposition earlier, one of the bits that I was thinking of is this early conversation we get between Degwin and Girin. <laughs> where Degwin is basically like, Your plan sucks. You're a terrible soldier. I hate you. I wish you'd never been born. By the way, Girin, <laughs> you're just like Hitler. Do you remember Hitler? Have you heard of Hitler? <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is the moment where Degwin turns to the audience and says, That guy, that guy is the bad guy. Right. Like, the first thing that I wondered when I saw this scene was had they received complaints or were they concerned that the audience had not fully registered <laughs> that Xeon was meant to be a Nazi Germany analog? Like, were they like, okay, apparently we're going to have to spell this out for everyone because they're not getting it.、Mm-hmm. They, you know, they like these Xeon guys way too much. Right. <laughs> like, we made the uniforms too cool and now everybody likes Xeon. Yeah. And the mobile suits.、So. And Char. Yeah.、Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I did wonder if there, there was an element of meta necessity、mm-hmm. 
in the way that people were interpreting the show and the way that people were interacting with the show that made them say, okay, apparently we got to spell this out because... Well, and I wonder if Giran in that scene isn't kind of a stand-in for exactly that sort of viewer. Because what Giran says is, Hitler, that guy from the past, the dictator, he seems like a pretty cool dude. Right. If... <laughs> I, I, think I, guess in... I, I guess I am like him. In that moment... I imagine he is meant to be more an analog for like resurgent nationalists mm -hmm. and like ethno nationalists right. in Japan. Who have this warped idea of what Hitler actually stands for. The sort of like, yeah, but Mussolini made the trains run on time kind of thing. Right. Mm. This like <laughs> this like idealization of fascism as this force for getting things done and not what it actually is. Right. Well, and when Giran says democracy is only ever going to bog down humanity. Right. He goes through the laundry list of fascist ideology, you know, self-justifications. This like humanity needs a strong ruler. People are weak and only I and the Zabi clan can ensure the survival of the human race by doing all of these evil things that, yes, they're evil, but they need to be done sort of thing. We get this interesting dichotomy of Degwin, who says that he created monarchy, basically. He created a Zeonic monarchy to band Zeon together. Mm -hmm. But it's unclear, like, was there unrest before? Was there risk of revolution? Like, why did he feel as if Zeon needed that? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like his intention was never to go take over the rest <laughs> of humanity. So I think in that interaction there, what we get is actually both the direct, clear Nazi Germany analog when he talks about Hitler. We also get an Imperial Japan analog because mm. this is the emperor talking to the militarist mm. ministers, mm -hmm. to the generals and the admirals who had taken over the cabinet and had taken over the government of the country. And this is every emperor from Meiji to Hirohito rolled together. Mm -hmm. But the emperor is saying, you know, this is my country. I'm I created this system for the good of the country, for the good of the nation, and the militarists saying, "That's nice. We have bigger plans." By the way, can you rubber stamp this? Because that gives it legitimacy yeah. in the eyes of the people. Yeah. One gets the impression he maybe did not step down of his own accord. Yeah. Because when they talk about it early on, they make it sound as if he chose Giran as his successor. He was done being in charge of the government. So he said, all right, Giran's very competent. He's going to take over for me. But every interaction we see between them after that shows his dislike of Giran, mm -hmm. his disdain for Giran, mm -hmm. the fact that they do not see eye to eye. So clearly this was not a chosen successor type situation. Yeah. I mean, listening to what Daegwin has said in the last dozen or so episodes. It's clear that he despises Giran. He doesn't trust Kaecilia. He thinks Dozel's an idiot. Garma was the only kid he liked. Yep. And you pointed out in the episode, and it's probably not a bad comparison, although I don't remember my history well enough to know if it's a spot on one, <laughs> but that Degwin may also be meant to be representative of the Kaiser. Yeah, that might take some more digging to, to figure out how well that tracks. World War One and World War Two get a little mixed up in Gundam. And we know that Shar is meant to be a Red Baron analog. He was a fighter pilot during the First World War. We know that Xeon has some Nazi Germany, but it also has some Prussia, and it has a lot of Imperial Japan. So these were all situations where you have an older, tired, weak, monarchical figure who remains as a figurehead for a domineering military government. Also, where it's worth pointing out 
the idea of a nation state in all of those cases was relatively new. Mm -hmm. Like it was not all that long before that Japan had been a bunch of separate fiefdoms, more or less. And the idea of a Japanese nation was quite a modern construction. Right. Ditto Uh, Germany. Yep. Germany was a lot of different pieces that considered themselves to have different culture, different... Like, they wouldn't have considered themselves to have German identity Mm -hmm. (laughs) necessarily until pretty late in the game. And when we say late in the game, we mean, like, maybe late 1800s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for both of these countries, the process of consolidation was a a long one. But definitely, even into World War I, your principal identity was not German. Your principal identity was Prussian, Bavarian, Mm -hmm. Bohemian. This is the first time Giren really expresses what it is that he's trying to do and how he justifies it. Mm -hmm. Giren says, we have reduced the population of the world, Mm -hmm. the human population. Which he sees as a net positive. Yes. And we are going to allow only the superior races to survive. It is unclear what he means by superior races. Like, what does that mean to Giren Zabi? Does he mean space noids? Does he, you know, what is his conception of race? Compared to ours. Right. Is he also a new type supremacist? Does he mean new types, even over space noids? Does he mean zombies? <laughs> right? <laughs> Does he mean people of Xeon over other space noids? Does he mean just elite people everywhere? Right. It's it's unclear what he means by that, but that he clearly has some kind of conception of race, and that is his basis for determining Who is superior? But to wed that to the idea that the earth has been overpopulated and the only way for the human species to survive is to reduce population is extremely frightening and uncomfortable. And that was a way of thinking about the world that was extremely common in the 60s and 70s. There is a economic ecological theorist called Malthus from, I want to say the 1700s, from like way back. But he basically proposed this idea that there was a maximum limit to the population that could be supported, which you'll see called carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. And in the 60s and 70s, and even before then, you have this resurgence of attention being paid to Malthus that gets tied into the nascent environmentalist movement. And you get this neo-Malthusianism, which then hooks up with eugenics and really does develop into a real-world Girinzabi kind of ideology. This is not a sci-fi part of the story. This is a real thing that was really going on at that time, even if it was wrapped in like cotton wool and made to look fluffy and non-threatening. Yeah, this is more of a topic for a research piece, but just to touch on it a little bit in case you have some questions. The reason we say that this conception immediately ties into eugenics and racism is because the minute you talk about limiting the human population, you have to talk about who you're letting reproduce and why. Yeah. (laughs) And all of those judgment calls don't come down to basically ranking humanity, Mm -hmm. right? As like, whose genetics do you want to promote and whose do you not? And are you judging people for reproducing and why? Mm -hmm. And it basically demands that you make these judgment calls about the value of human life. (laughs) And for some reason, it always ends up being other people, people very different from you. Who should be having fewer babies. Exactly. And as this is a conversation that was mostly happening in elite circles in Western countries in the 60s and 70s, the people who are making these choices are pretty exclusively wealthy 
and white and old. And then you get situations like China, where the one-child policy has led to some pretty severe societal problems that we are only just now really having to grapple with. It's bad for society (laughs) to have that many unattached young men, like that high a percentage of young men who probably will never be able to marry. Yeah, that many single children who are going to have to support two parents. So yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about (laughs) Malthus later. But if you were wondering why we said that that ties into eugenics, that's why. And if you're wondering why we said it ties into the environmentalism movement, it's because in those early days, a lot of the emphasis was on there are just too many people consuming too many resources, and the only solution is to have fewer people. And this is not new for Gundam, right? Going back to the very foundation of the universal century, there's a reason that all of the poor people got sent to the colonies, and it is because the rich people felt that the earth was overcrowded. And look at the societal consequences of that decision. The antipathy between Degwin and Girin goes so deep that Degwin actually takes action behind Girin's back to go and attempt to negotiate with the Fetties. Of course, Girin knows immediately. He like <laughs> figures it out. But but Girin never would have let him go. No. But yeah, right at the end of A Cosmic Glow, we find out that Degwin's ship has arrived at Revel's flagship. Because Degwin wants to try to negotiate a peace. And this ties into the other aspect of the Xeon homeland story, which is their preparations for the final defense. And what inspires Degwin to go sue for peace is that Girin has concluded the Federation is going to attack Xeon directly and that he is preparing to fight the war inside three in the home colonies. And not just that, but has he has decided to sacrifice one of their colonies, Mahal in defense of the rest. And Degwin tells him outright that he thinks this is a horrible military decision, uh, that there are certain prices you should not pay. Even for victory. Well, because after the fact, you still have a populace to lead. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that if you subject your people to, you render that populace like ungovernable Mm -hmm. (laughs) after the war, whether you win or not. The thing I immediately thought about which we talked about a bit in the War Orphans research, was if this was meant to be indicative of the evacuation of Manchuria. Mm -hmm. The Soviet army was coming. The Chinese army was coming. Japan was not going to be able to hold Manchuria, and everyone who could get out did. Everyone (laughs) rushed to the port cities and tried to get out in time. Well, almost. Yeah, the ships stopped leaving before everybody could get out. A lot of young people did not have the resources to get out on their own. I'm sure there were plenty of adults who didn't manage to get out on their own. Well, the thing I was going to point out is way, 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 way back in, I think, episode 1.2, when we talked about the Japanese plans for the last ditch defense of Japan, we talked about how Japan created these civilian battalions. Basically, every civilian who plausibly could fight was expected to do so. Now, that never happened on the home islands, but it did happen on Okinawa, and it did happen in Manchuria. It happened, you know, in the colonies, where the people weren't quite as Japanese. There's no implication in the episode that they fail to fully evacuate Mahal, but it's, what, a mill and a half people, they Mm -hmm. say, who now suddenly are going to flood (laughs) 
all the remaining Xeon territory. They pull no punches. The evacuation itself, the displacement itself is horrible and traumatic. Families are separated. Families are separated. People are beaten by soldiers. These are people who have probably lost everything. We only ever see people with small bags. Mm -hmm. So imagine somebody tells you like, okay, you can pack a backpack and leave. And with the absolute certainty that everything you leave behind is going to be destroyed. Yeah. Which is when we learn that the solar ray, while similar to the Federation solar ray, is constructed quite differently because they're using the inside of the O'Neill cylinder with additional external mirrors to create the ray. Mm-hmm. One thing I very much appreciated is the slow burn on the use of the solar ray. They mention it at the beginning of Lala's Dilemma. It doesn't get fired until the end of a cosmic glow, and we actually don't see what it hits. We see the beginning of it firing, and we see Amro's reaction to his knowledge that it is firing. His new type sense of it which he describes as people are dissolving in a whirlpool of light. That is the light of hatred. (laughs) Nina just shuddered. It's a small thing, but when the Xeon solar ray fires, you can actually see the colony being pushed backwards by it. The force of it. I also found myself wondering, the white base is supposed to be at the forefront, but they have to wait for the Gundam repairs. And is that why they're not in the path of the solar ray when it fires? I'm making my I can neither confirm nor deny face. (laughs) The other piece of the Xeon Homeland storyline takes place in a very different part of space, and it's Kaecilia. Confronting Char, that she knows that he had planned on taking vengeance on the Zabi family. She knows that that plan has been sidelined or put aside completely. She knows who he is. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh. Char says that he is surprised and nervous, but I don't really believe him. Yeah, he he says, I knew this day was coming. Look at me, I'm shaking. And he holds up his hand and it's perfectly still. That could just be they couldn't afford to animate more frames (laughs) and make it look like he was shaking. Maybe. But to call attention to it in the dialogue, show the hand (laughs) and then not show it shaking, that feels like a lot of effort to go to. And I have to conclude that it's intentional, that he's not actually shaking. Kaecilia more or less tells Char that she knows all of this and then concludes that it's an open question that they will deal with after the war is over. Mm -hmm. So why confront him now? Well. Well. (laughs) (laughs) A supposition, a theory, if you will. Last episode with Shalia Bull, I observed that Kaecilia might have been using Shar to do a bit of her dirty work, using Shar to get rid of Shalia Bull by ensuring that Shar knew that Shalia was a threat to Lala. And what Kaecilia says at the end of this conversation, after revealing that she knows who Shar actually is, what Kaecilia says is, Girin has gone to a Bawaku. We'll resolve everything once the war is over. And there's a couple of interpretations of that. It could be that Girin going to a Bawaku merely emphasizes how desperate the war situation has gotten. The Supreme Commander himself has gone to the last line of defense where he will take personal command. Alternatively, Kaecilia, who we know is very opaque, very subtle in her dealings, very much a master of subterfuge, perhaps Kaecilia is suggesting to Shar that if he did something about Girin at Abawaku, things would be resolved 
little more favorably for him. She's saying, I know who you are. I know you want revenge against the zombies. Remember that my brother is still out there. That would seem to make the most sense. I also noticed in this conversation that Kaecilia more or less tells us that she believes Char to be a new type, Mm -hmm. which everything in Char's behavior so far makes it clear he doesn't think that he's a new type. I don't I don't think, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, maybe when he has that interaction with Lala where she asks if he saw this coming and he says, you know, new types aren't all powerful. Maybe he's talking about himself. Mm-hmm. But we've never seen the little new type sparkle. When he's testing Amaro, there is a sense of like, oh, that pilot is a new type. That's why I can't do anything to him. Right. Whereas if Shar were himself a new type, you'd think it would be... Even. More even. Mm-hmm. Despite Shar's pursuit of new type supremacy, he doesn't necessarily believe that he is one. That's mm-hmm. why he thinks Lala will surpass him. That's why he keeps telling Lala, you're going to surpass me. You're going to be even better than me. He sees himself as the person who will throw open the door for new types. And he will usher the world into the new type era. But Kaecilia mentions Shar is always making these conjectures. Uh, She describes him as having almost clairvoyant insight. And he was able to tell that Lala was a new type. And at the very end, we finally get confirmation. We'll talk about this scene again. But he does get the little new type flash, new type sparkle. (laughs) So we get confirmation he is, in fact, also a new type. But Kaecilia figures that out before he does. (laughs) There's one more thing I'd like to point out about this scene. Very interesting visual note. During their conversation, Kaecilia is totally unmasked. Char is half unmasked. Good call. I did notice his mask looks a little funny without the helmet. It does. It makes his hair look silly. <laughs> In this scene, we're meant to read that Kaecilia, like these are Kaecilia's cards and they're on the table. Shar mm-hmm. lets her believe that she understands him. Mm-hmm. And I think with Shar's helmet off, we're meant to think that she's close. Mm-hmm. But with the mask still on, she's not there yet. You were talking about the slow burn on the solar ray system, and I really appreciate the slow burn on Lala. How do you mean? Well, Lala was first introduced way back in Side 6, many episodes ago. And since then, we've had the White Base doing all kinds of things, Xeon doing all kinds of things, Solomon, Texas, and all along, Lala has been... In a couple of scenes in each episode, developing, getting closer to the front, learning and growing and expanding her abilities, expanding her consciousness and increasing her arsenal. In the previous episode in Shaliabol, we had a whole sequence of Lala showing off just how powerful she can be. And now we get Lala in battle with the Gundam for the first time. And unlike most Xeon forces who show up, this late in the show, she doesn't appear and then get killed in one episode. We also get some glimpses of her weakness, though. She is essentially incapable of focusing if she doesn't have cover. If she has to dodge someone else's attacks, Mm -hmm. she's helpless. Yeah. Well, she's not a hardened soldier. She's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. But this is her first time in a real battle. This is her first time being shot at. And that that dichotomy, that contrast between her incredible power and her fragility, her inexperience and her weakness, that's in the show. 
the veteran Xeon pilots who are assigned to be her guardians, essentially, her supports, have that exact same reaction. They see her power and they don't see her weakness. This touches on something that I think Lala sets off, but it also affects Amuro and the white base crew, which is we kind of see some non-new type humans experience almost existential crises Mm -hmm. when exposed to new types. The sense of, well, what is even the point of me (laughs) when this other person can go do the work of 10 people like me? Like, why why do I even bother? Why do I exist? What am am I doing here? Why am I in danger? Right. Why should I risk my life when one of these new types can do everything? It is the crisis of the ordinary person in the presence of the superhuman. It's the second order question that sci-fi stories always have to wrestle with once you introduce some means by which some subset of people become superior. Whatever that means is, if it's magic, if it's science, if it's cybernetic enhancements or uh, Mm -hmm. brain pills or whatever, (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is, as soon as some people have it and some people don't, you have to reckon with what that means Yeah, socially and psychologically for the people who are left behind. Lala's uniform gets brought up again. Kaecilia finds it offensive (laughs) that Lala is not wearing a uniform. Kaecilia also not wearing a uniform, though. Yeah, but Kaecilia is a commander. Yeah, I want to say she's like a rear admiral or something. And in fairness, in fairness, we have never actually met another Xeon rear admiral. Maybe they all dress like that. Maybe they're all wearing skin-tight purple leotards. With pointy shoulders. I think you're being a little nitpicky because... While we've never seen anyone else in Kaecilia's same outfit, whereas the men in her family we've seen wear more or less the standard Xeon uniform, something about her outfit is clearly a uniform, right? You don't, yeah. it doesn't look like civilian clothes. It's not <laughs> just an outfit. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a uniform, even if she's the only one who wears it. <laughs> whereas Lala's is clearly not a uniform. Yes. No, you're right. You're right. And Char makes another new excuse as to why she's not wearing one. I still think, and perhaps even more now, it's about a sense of ownership that Lala is not Zeon's. Lala is not the Zabi's. Lala is his. Mm -hmm. So he's not going to put her in a Zeon uniform. It is also when discussing Lala's performance after that first fight that we hear Char mention the creation of a special new type combat force. Yes. I would think you'd want to spread the new types around. Char's desire to concentrate all of the new types into a single force. I mean, who would be the natural leader of such a force? You would need someone who had experience commanding new types. And after the death of Shalia Bull... Who in the Xeon military has experience commanding new types? And in the the final big point about Lala, before we get to her scenes with Amuro towards the end, is this apparent romance with Char. Yeah. And that that is her sole motivating thing. Mm-hmm. Her sole motivation is to protect Char. That's it. That's all she's got. Well, I presume she also wants to impress Char. She wants to please Char. She wants to get more Char smooches. She describes him as having saved her. None of their previous interactions, to me, spoke to any kind of romantic attachment on Char's side. Like, until he kisses her here, I could easily have pictured him, you know, affectionate towards her, but not in a romantic way. Mm -hmm. In a more, like, platonic, familial kind of way. 
Yeah. So to me, that felt manipulative. Yeah. It wasn't about, I love you and we're going into battle together. It was about, I know this is going to motivate you. And ensure your loyalty to me. So, kiss, kiss. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that scene has to be a conscious mirror to the other time we had a kiss right before people went into battle, and that was Slager and Mirai, which was also a kiss with a lot of complicated things going on and not a lot of romance. And it's also a situation where after the kiss, one person, and in both cases, it's the woman, says something along the lines of, I want you to be safe out there. Yeah. Char tells Lala he'll follow her orders, and her very first order is, you have to wear a normal suit into battle. And she doesn't phrase it as an order. To be fair, in the Japanese, she phrases it as a polite request. Because even though he says he'll follow her orders, he still outranks her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's going to be polite. So at one point, she tells Amuro that she sees him as bullying Char, which again, that's the word she uses in Japanese, is to bully. Mm Mm-hmm. And Amaro is flabbergasted, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is battle, not a schoolyard. Like, Well, it's it's very black and white thinking. Shar good, everyone who opposes Shar bad. Right. I've talked before about how she seems very childlike to me. Mm-hmm. And the way that she looks at battle also seems childlike to me. She has this one very clear motivation. She appears to have no conception of the broader issues at play whatsoever. Uh, we've never seen her experience the remorse that we saw Amro experience early on. This idea that like, oh, I have killed some people. Yeah. Nothing. Doesn't affect her at all. And part of that's the distance that she gets with the Elmeth, but part of that's this way of thinking that she has. And that's, you know, that is a very common reaction to trauma, especially trauma early in childhood, especially sustained trauma early in childhood. And everything we know about Lala tells us that she had a very traumatic childhood before Shar found her. And that's part of the reason, like you mentioned earlier, that Lala is unconflicted. And you're absolutely right. But Lala has uh, the Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Like, Lala was traumatized and then has been... Ever since, I mean, ever since Shar found her, and let's be clear, he's, he wasn't out rescuing orphans. He was looking for new types. He was looking for people with special abilities when he found her and has been a master manipulator to make her need his praise, need mm-hmm. his affection, mm-hmm. need him. Yeah. And so, like, yes, she's unconflicted, but also... She's someone who has really been horribly shaped (laughs) by her life. Absolutely. And it's created a psyche that is very rigid and in a way very fragile. We're going to talk about this later. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only going to touch on it now. But when she and Amuro have that connection, she suddenly has this realization that Amuro is not Char, but also not bad. And trying to wrestle with those two ideas, which in her mind, in her worldview, are completely contradictory, causes her so much pain and discomfort. Yeah. And maybe now we should talk about Amaro so that we can get to talking about the two of them together. The first scene Amaro gets in this episode is with the Gundam and Moss Khan. Who I is wanted the- to talk about even before that, actually. Then go ahead. Please do. Before we see Amaro, we see the orphans, and they are talking about Amaro. Mm. And I have a note here, Amaro ex machina. (laughs) Because this is the scene where Amaro physically exits the machina? No, because (laughs) one of the kids posits, 
isn't it good that Amuro is getting stronger? While another points out, it doesn't matter without the Gundam. If the Gundam can't keep up, then what does it matter if Amuro is getting better? There is this interdependence between Amuro and the Gundam now. Mm -hmm. That Amuro as fighter does not exist without the Gundam. Mm -hmm. It's like he's become so strong that every time he swings his sword, it breaks. And then we seg into the appearance of Dr. Mas Khan. Mm -hmm. Who is one of the Federation's top electrical engineers. And he's come up with a theoretical solution for the Gundam's problems. Kind of a, a slapdash ad hoc kind of thing where they're going to use magnets, which is Gundam's solution to everything. They're going to use magnets to reduce the mechanical friction within the Gundam by wrapping every joint in some magnetic sort of magnetic something. coating, I think they say, and reduce the friction to zero. Which is all like some neat science mumbo jumbo for <laughs> I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix your weapon and I'm going to make it a weapon that can keep up with you. But what is really, really interesting in this scene is how Amuro interacts with Mos Khan emotionally. Because when Dr. Han first shows up, Amuro is very suspicious. He's very protective of the Gundam. He doesn't know who this person is or what they're doing. And he doesn't understand what's being proposed. He has a lot of questions. He seems very tense. Once the Gundam has been upgraded or while the Gundam is being upgraded and he's having a conversation with Dr. Han and Dr. Han is explaining things to him and they're talking about it almost like equals, but not quite. The expression on Amuro's face and in his voice is not like appreciation. It's not respect. It is affection. It's, it's affection. It's love. It's attachment. This is the relationship Amuro has always wanted with his dad. Yeah. And Mos Khan is enough like his dad, this brilliant scientist who's working on the Gundam, but who is actually talking to Amuro about things and explaining them and even appears to care about Amuro and wants him to continue being alive. I was going to say, they have that joke back and forth about you know, he's like, come back safe, kid, more or less. And Amaro's like, oh, because you just want the data, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, of course, I just want the data. Like, they're clearly joshing each other yeah. about this. And it's an obvious parallel to Amaro's father, Tem, who very clearly didn't care <laughs> if Amaro came back or not and just yeah. wanted the data. <laughs> yeah. And so Amro's reaction to Dr. Han is like over the top attachment immediately. This is the father figure I've always wanted. I think there's a neat comparison and a, a contrast there to Giran and Degwin, which is why last week in our next time on, we referred to this as the dads they deserve. It's like, Amro's a good kid. He deserves a good dad. Giran is a monster and he has the dad he deserves. We then have that somewhat odd conversation with Sela, which also felt maybe like it was supposed to be expository in some way, but is more confusing. Or flirtatious. <laughs> maybe. Uh... Amaro describes himself as old-fashioned, which I do not understand at all. <laughs> uh, I think that has to be that has to be a line that would have made sense in the seventies mm. and doesn't make sense now. He's like, I don't know if I'm a new type. I think someone's more likely to describe me as old type. Well, what Sailor then says is like, yeah, you're not at all like groovy, groovy and far <laughs> out. Which we looked up the word. It is a colloquialism for groovy. Yeah. And the, the word it's based on is like to fly or something. Or leap or, yeah. So, yeah, I think what Amuro is saying here is like, I'm not like trendy and with the times and very like chill and mellow and, mm -hmm. you know, late 70s kind of young man. I'm a serious, dutiful 40s and 50s kind of man. Mm. 
Sayla goes on to describe him as sentimental, which he absolutely is. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, you're, the way you're describing me makes me sound really uncool. <laughs> this is not flattering, Sayla. <laughs> he's not really hurt. They're having fun. I had a strong feeling from the scene that we were supposed to learn something about these characters, and I don't feel like I did. <laughs> Felt a little wasted to me. I have a revelation Ooh. from the out-of-show canon. <gasps> yes. And I'm a little hesitant to reveal this. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say it. In the novels, Amuro and Sailor are a couple. Okay. So maybe we're supposed to get a sense of them being flirtatious. Yeah. Okay. Shrug. <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't really buy them as a couple, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, honestly, the only couples so far that have made sense to me in the show are were Mirai and Bright when they were together. I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And like Matilda and Woody, who we never see together, but from seeing them separately, we're like, all right, we see how these two people would have gotten along. Yeah. Well, Dozel and Zena. Yeah, in their messed up <laughs> kind of way. Shar and Lala in their messed up kind of way. <laughs> I'm just saying it makes yeah. sense. I, right. I see so, that couple. Yes. Shar and Garma. Yeah, it's true. Okay. So there have been a fair number of doomed couples <laughs> who have made sense. Uh, and a lot of not doomed couples that I'm like, no, you have not shown me anything in the show to for me to find that relationship believable. Mm-hmm. This episode really hammers home how much Amro has developed and changed throughout the course of the series. Because when everyone's on the white base talking about him being a new type, Amro says, well, yeah, okay, sure, but that doesn't make me special. Doesn't make me better than all of you. Like everybody on the white base, the way we've been fighting together, everyone here must be a new type. Which is a really, really, really long distance from Amro in his cell pounding on the walls and screaming, I am the best at Gundam things. You have to let me fight. No one else can Gundam like I Gundam. For this scene, we're on the bridge with all our main characters for the white base crew. And hearing them all talk about new types. And we have a few people who we've seen definite signs. We have a few people who are strong possibles. They've lived in space their whole lives. They're fighting on the white base. Who knows? And then we have a few people who seem like definite no's. And one of those people is Bright. Yeah. Bright grew up on Earth. Bright has only been in space a very little while. And every time the new type conversation comes up, (laughs) he seems like he's wrestling with something. And this is the counterpoint to those two Xeon officers talking about, well, Lala didn't need us. She could have fought that whole group by herself. Bright is wrestling with the fact that he doesn't feel necessary. Yeah. That he has a crew full of he has a crew full of people whose powers are beyond his comprehension and it may not be simple it may not be straightforward but i think he's having a bit of a crisis about it and if you have any doubt about this if you have any doubt about whether nina's right about this it didn't occur to me until she started saying it but right when he's shown wrestling with this issue pondering the new types issue there's a moment where something needs to be done and he doesn't get a chance to give the order because Mirai has already given it. And he is about to countermand it, or not countermand it, he's about to say, oh, but what about? And she's like, oh, let them handle it. Yeah. 
And he's even, and he's sitting there in his chair, muttering to himself, new types, huh? <laughs> and Mirai asks him what's wrong, and he just kind of shrugs her off. It's very subtle, but I think it's clear that the idea of new types weighs on him, and not in a way that he thinks it's bad. There's no indication that he thinks there's anything wrong with Amuro using these abilities or anything like unnatural or bad about it. So I think it's got to be his place in all of this. How mm -hmm. does he fit? I think there's also an interesting aspect with Frabo there, because Frabo is part of those conversations. Often, the conversation takes the form of somebody saying, gosh, I think new types exist, don't you, Frabo? And Frabo going, yeah. <laughs> it happens a couple of times where someone makes a statement, but it's in the form of a question and it's directed to Frabo, and the expectation is that she will just say, yeah. And so Frabo is constantly reaffirming the existence of new types, but we've had no evidence that she's one either. We get very little time with her. I don't think we see any sort of emotional response from her. But we know she has been grappling essentially with this question for a long time because she, more than anybody else, and for the longest time, has been dealing with the issue of Amuro being different and Amuro being different from her mm -hmm. and going beyond her. Thank you for listening to the first half of Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 1.33, No Family, No Homeland. The second half begins right where this one left off. Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Listening.